You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today's episode is so, so special to me, guys. One of my dearest and tenderest friends is here. Miles Adcox. He is an entrepreneur, podcast host, speaker, and owner and CEO of OnSite. OnSite is the most incredible emotional wellness workshop facility in the beautiful rolling hills outside of Nashville, Tennessee. I have been there twice now. I think that it is one of the most important things we can do for our health, so much so that Thanks to Miles, we've actually put together an annual creatives retreat uh, with a bunch of our friends and a bunch of our coworkers. And as I mentioned, second year running, and we're hoping to keep it going forever. Uh, really, I could go on about him all day, but I'll save that for the podcast. We're releasing this episode on World Mental Health Day, but really, every day should be Mental Health Day. I hope that you all learn as much and feel as much permission from Miles as I have, and it inspires you to take extra good care of yourself. Hi, buddy. Hey. I'm so happy you're here. I am really happy I'm here. So for everybody listening at home or in the car or wherever you are, um, Miles and I met way back when I was living in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I was working on One Tree Hill. I think it was maybe the seventh season of the show. What I realized is that I don't remember things in calendar years. I I know everything by what season of a show it was, which is complicated because show seasons run over two years. They run from summer of one year to spring of the next. So I, I literally don't understand how a calendar works anymore. But here we are. Long story longer. I, I believe it was that year or maybe it was season eight. I don't know. But you... You had come out and you were, to respect everyone's privacy, let's just say you were doing some work with someone I was working with. 
And we had this wonderful dinner, I think on the first night that you were in Wilmington, and we sat for hours, a little group of us just talking about life and experience and curiosity, and and you talked about on-site. You talked about your work in the emotional fitness and wellness space and the kind of experiential therapy that's done there. And I remember... And I'll never forget it, but hearing all about it, one of the things that really struck me, that really stuck with me, uh, was the way you talked about equine therapy, Mm. and in particular, how incredible it is for kids and people uh, to heal, but especially people with autism. And I remember a couple of years later, becoming close to a guy who works at the co-op where I buy my groceries and he was telling me about him and his wife's son who was Mm. six at the time and what they were sort of struggling to develop uh, with him and for him because of his autism. And I said, if you can, you've got to go to this place called Onsite. It's outside of Nashville. Mm. They do equine therapy. And, And I remembered you saying to me that for people whose brains are extra sensitive like that, that being out in that quiet on the acreage of the property allows the brain to calm down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I still think about the conversation now. I mean, it's been well over a decade and yeah. I've never forgotten anything you said. And mm-hmm. I think that is a testament to what a beautiful communicator you are wow. and to the way that you share the work that you all do. Mm-hmm. And how much purpose there is behind it. Because when you talk about it, it really is unforgettable. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you. That that was a season, too, for me, both personally and professionally, where mm. I kind of thought my role was better in the background. And, you know, I was a little often nervous to come mm. into social settings and talk about what I did. Because you just it, I used to be a little bit more hung up on the stigma and of it. And the often stigma thought, around mental health. Yeah, just mental health. Mm. And for a long, and you know, nowadays it's become hip and cool, which is amazing. But back then, I was always hesitant and felt like my role was to be in the background. But boy, you didn't allow that to happen. I'll never forget that. Which I, now that I know that's this <laughs> part of your gifting, but you pulled me right to the edge of my chair, and we dominated a lot of that dinner talking about it. And I just felt so seen, so valued, and that was a pivotal point for me as I think back that. I could better serve a passion uh, that I'd been divinely inspired to be a part of by not being in the background, but by Mm. speaking up and using my voice. And so I think moments like that, I never forget because they're part of this timeline that has helped me become who I am and who I'm becoming. So that's so cool. And same. I mean, for me, you know, I think about it. I was, I, yeah, it was like you put a gift on the table and I was like, well, I have to unwrap that. (laughs) What's in that box? What are you talking about? Mm. And it was so, cool. And especially as a kid, you know, before I wound up being a storyteller for my job, I wanted to be a doctor. And I thought a lot about going into the psychology field. And there was even a a college I was applying to that I withdrew my application from because they wouldn't allow me to double major in theater and psychology. Mm. Neither of those things wound up being my major, but I was so driven by this curiosity to understand the mind and how it works. Mm. And you started talking about what you do. And to your point, 10 years ago, the conversations were not so 
on the dinner table about mental health. They were more paper bag, bottom shelf, you know, which is a disservice to all of us. We talk so much about going to the gym and we don't talk about our brain gym. Therapy is a brain gym. Anyway, we'll get into that. But I, I just thought like, this is the most exciting thing that's happened, you know, in, in this little town in North Carolina that we're living in in a long time. Because mm-hmm. when you live in a small place like that and, and you have a routine in the way that we did with work, you're kind of doing the same thing every day. Right. And you showed up with all this new information and I was just so excited. It's ironic. That's another connection point, which it seems like every time we're together, we discover another one uh, uh, where I thought I would be heading more towards a creative uh pursuit mm. in my profession and then life intervened and I wound up getting in kind of the helping profession and change but the modalities that I most subscribe to as it relates to supporting people to walk through change are very similar to that in theater and drama and creativity mm. so I it, the world's it for a long time the world's try to keep our professions apart yeah uh, but I think in a beautiful way now they've come together in ways that are healing a lot of hearts yeah it's so cool it's so cool. So that's interesting to me. You say that you, when you were younger, you thought you'd go more into the the creative space um, or maybe what we would call a more traditionally creative space. I think what you do is very creative, but I'm always so curious because I sit across from so many people in these incarnations of themselves where they're doing such amazing work in the world and, and they're growing and sharing who were you when you were young? What drove you? Were were you this same kind of, you know, sensitive, observational kind man in a boy's body or or were you wildly different? What has your what has your journey been like? Wow, what a what a great question. So, I do believe it was always in there. Mm-hmm. And it came out in ways that felt safer and more socially acceptable at that time. Primarily, I was always drawn to animals and I rescued. I grew up on a farm mm. and always had a pack of dogs. Where straight. was your farm? It was uh, south of Nashville, Tennessee, a little okay. town called Hohenwald, Tennessee. Sounds like cool. Hole in the Wall, but it's actually not. It's German <laughs> for high forest, H-O-H-E-N-W-A-L-D. Okay. We had a German-Swiss heritage, but it was a small uh, town and uh, it's a beautiful place to grow up. But I grew up on acreage and just we always I always had strays and I and to this day I still collect strays both mm. animals people just you know and so I've always had a heart for doing it uh I think I there was a a big part of me that took a long time to come out and be okay with and I there are still parts of me that come alive because I'm a constant work in progress and continue to explore you know mm. who I am and there's deeper roots in my soul that it's exciting to kind of get to know uh, but I think as a young a young kid, I've always been sensitive, but mm-hmm. I didn't want the world to know it because that was not mm-hmm. socially, um, that wasn't a social norm for boys. Yeah. And I remember picking, I'm highly perceptive, I'm highly relational. And so I love reading people. I also was looking for my place. So I, I, I think early on, I had a wonderful family in a lot of ways, and there were many ways that we were normal. Uh, we had our, our mess, and thankfully, we've, we, these days, we've turned it into a message. But back then, I was kind of looking externally for where do I fit? Yeah. You know, where's my place? And I started to get validation and feel my way around based on what I felt like the people around me wanted me to be. And mm. I became highly impressionable and started becoming that. But I do think there was this deep-seated thing that always wanted to come out, and it just took a long time. 
So when you say as a as a young boy, because you're right, it's, we're we're having conversations again. It seems like the conversation around emotional fitness is changing, but we we have not historically normalized sensitivity, empathy, compassion for boys. We we celebrate machismo and toughness, and we tell boys that they shouldn't cry and that they shouldn't throw like a girl, that they shouldn't be gentle, which I think creates so much uh, pressure. And I also think in the long term teaches boys when they're boys and when they're becoming men that their only socially acceptable form of emotional response is anger. And then we wonder why so many men are so violent with women, with each other, you know, we, we've created this really negative feedback loop for you guys. And I imagine that it's very hard as a young man to know where to put your sensitivity, especially when you feel like you can't show it. So I'm curious when you say that you started learning what it seemed like other people wanted you to be and becoming that. What does that mean? Who were you, who were you becoming? Who were you trying on? I always thought it had to be one or the other. I, I, I didn't think boys had to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. I felt they would be more accepted if they were, but I felt like you couldn't be both. That was either you had this soft, sensitive side, which were the ones that weren't too popular, or you had this athlete, tough, out in, in the uh, place that I grew up. Outdoors were a big thing in the South, and so mm-hmm. I needed to be all those things in order to be accepted. But the thing that was confusing for me is I loved both. I had a soft, sensitive side, and I also loved the outdoors, and I loved athletics, and I thought, so it was confusing because the messages I got is you got to choose. And for Mm. me, um, well, for a lot of people, I think at that pivotal point in our lives, you just, acceptance is oxygen, and I needed to be accepted. And so I chose the safer route and neglected this part of myself and bottled it up, just as you shared for so long that it compounded and finally came out sideways in my early twenties. And that was when the gift of me becoming whole started to surface, but it came through the process of some pain for sure. Mm. And isn't that interesting? Cause what we ignore festers yeah. and grows, and then it does, it comes out sideways. It finds a vent and can be kind of shocking. So what, how did that present for you in your twenties? I found myself in a bit of an identity crisis that I didn't even know I was in. I was on, uh, I was in, I had enough of an imprint with my family to be highly driven Mm. and to uh, present well. And so I did that as a survival mechanism and I did it well. Mm. But I had all these pockets of people that I had to keep up with uh, to try to be who they needed me to be, to be okay and to be accepted by. And it just ran out of runway. It just ran its course. And so I found myself um, bottling up emotions to a point where I got exhausted and I started Mm. numbing and medicating uh, what turned into or manifested in anxiety and depression. Didn't have a name for it then. Uh, Knew nothing about it. I just knew if you it wasn't okay to not be okay. That I knew. Mm. That script went way back. And so I did what most of us do is you try to outrun that as best mm-hmm. you can. And I did that in a lot of creative ways. And and it, 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 was, it was fun for a while. And it just wasn't fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there's parts of it. I, I used to say I wouldn't trade it in. But there's parts of it I would. Because there were some painful moments in there. And mm-hmm. I missed some parts of my life that I'd love to have back. But uh, 
there's parts of it that were interesting too and that mm-hmm. I learned, but I basically went, I numbed relationally, I numbed chemically, just anything I could find to kind of numb internally what was manifesting that I couldn't figure out because again, I performed, everything looked good on paper. I mean, mm-hmm. everything looked really good professionally and personally and that, that made it even harder. It's like, why do I feel bad when everything should feel good? Yeah, but that's a big truth that I think so many people find themselves in where it looks good from the outside. It looks good through a screen on your Instagram or Facebook or whatever, but people are struggling. Mm. And we teach, it seems like we're only giving people a very tiny part of the toolkit. And what we tell them is meant to make them happy is such a small segment of what wholeness looks like that so many people are left feeling like they're missing it. Yeah, it's, it's, I can't tell you, and, and, and I know I'm jumping ahead and, and we'll get there because I appreciate you starting at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I don't often get to tell this part of the story, but I, the, the number of people I sit in front of today that just come with what they feel like as their worst. Mm-hmm. And I get to kind of hold up a mirror and say, actually, it's your best. And mm-hmm. it's been waiting to come out for years. Mm-hmm. And it's just needed permission. And so, mm-hmm. in its essence, is I love what my friend Brene Brown says is we just. You know, we write people permission slips to tell their truth over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I get to be on the front seat of doing that now. And it's really, now granted, I've had some professional training, but it's just me getting there and getting to reflect my story into another human being. Yeah. And it's incredibly powerful. And I'm not one of those professionals in my space that try to act like I don't benefit from my profession. I I, I didn't get into it by accident and I've stayed in it because yeah. it makes me a better human. Now I have to keep that intact. I don't need to get all my worth from helping people change, you know, be be part of people's stories. I know I don't have the power to change people's lives, but I certainly can be a, hopefully a helpful guide. But mm-hmm. there is a huge benefit to doing that. If yeah. you know that you're human enough to have transference, counter-transference, all the stuff that can come with it, and you have a proper pace to offload it, you don't get your identity too wrapped up in it, but you better believe there's a there's a great benefit to it. Yeah. What a gift to be in a space where real transformative work is being done you know Mm. it we we experience osmosis we experience energy the energy of a group group think can be incredibly illuminating and at times unfortunately incredibly dangerous and you get to have group think in a very illuminating space it's kind of anti-culture in a way which is nice to live in a space like that what do you mean by that well you don't culture doesn't necessarily organically provide opportunities for us to be that real with one another. Mm. And so I get to live and spend a lot of my time in a space that cultivates truth, mm-hmm. vulnerability. And again, it's trending now, which is, a, is nice, but I really get to spend a large focus amount of my time in that space. And I tell people when they leave, like one of our workshops, or I'll say, you know, the world is not going to feel like this to you this kind of bubble that you've curated with these community, but Mm. you will begin to feel like this to the world. Yes. And that's the beauty of being able to practice and rewrite the parts of our, our rewrite our neural nets to allow us to step into that space more. But it's a, it's a real gift to get to do it professionally because it, it keeps me curious and open to curate and create it personally. Mm. And I have that community now where, I mean, we're part of a community that does that. We practice it and you know, the joy that comes from it. It's just, 
I want everybody to feel it and experience it, but it's not something that comes naturally or easy. You have to work toward. Now, once you get there, it's pretty natural and easy, but you have to work towards it and kind of show up in the way that you want other people to show up for you. Yeah. So we know where you are, but in between this experience that you had in your 20s, kind of waking up to the fact that something was missing, a part of you really was missing. How how does it happen? Because I know that you thought you would be an agent or a broadcaster, and I'm I'm curious how you go from that goal set to working in the mental health field. What happened? What did you start to study? How well, do you make that that big swing and, and stay true to what is calling you? Because hmm. I think so many people feel like they've got to do the thing that looks good on paper, be a doctor, be a lawyer, go into whatever the field is that seems safe or smart. And, and you went into this kind of great unknown. How, how'd you find the courage to do that? And, and how did it connect? I wish I could take courage. I wish I could take credit for it and say, I just woke up one day with this inspired moment, but it was really on the back end of a crash that mm. it kind of found me, if you will. Mm. And I, the, even where I was headed in my creative pursuit professionally, it, it still needed to be gift wrapped in a masculine package, mm. which is why I chose sports. And mm-hmm. it's not that I don't love sports. It's just, I didn't ever allow myself to explore other things outside of it, like the arts and things that I love now. But that was just a natural. It was like, if I can wrap my identity up in being in some way on the business side of sports, but I don't really fully want to be, and I didn't even know at the time that I would end up enjoying business too. Uh, and I liked that part of my brain at the time. I was like, I, if I go into broadcasting, then I can have the masculine identity with sports and I can play with creativity a little bit with being an orator and communicator. Mm. But I'll never forget um, when I was in uh, graduate school and I had uh, a graduate assistantship with a college property. It was University of Tennessee, which is a big legendary football program. And I got an opportunity to go out and try to sell some media, sell some advertising. And I I got really lucky because my very first call, I sold the biggest ad in the entire book. And it was, I had no idea what I was doing. And it just was right time, right place. Mm -hmm. But I came back to the office. And again, I wanted to pursue broadcasting, which is a much longer, less predictable path, Mm -hmm. meaning a lot, very few people make it to a certain level. But I was ready to do it, and I was kind of getting my creative fuel that way. And then so all I needed was one person I respected to look at me, and this is, you, this person may know who he is, and I still respect him. This was not his. This was my stuff. But he said, I think you found your career. And it's, you know, just kind of pivot. And as soon as he said that, I got this validation. It was like, I'm good at that. I just got seen for it. And that's how malleable I was at the time. It was like, whoop. I pivoted and suddenly I was like, okay, let's ride off the broadcasting path. And now I'm supposed to be this executive that sells media in sports. And so I started doing that just with one sales call and one affirmation. I pivoted. But what I didn't realize I was doing is that was one of many series of times where I went against my gut for Mm. approval because my gut was saying there's something here for you. Mm. But I was so desperate for approval at the time and so on hold that I just went over here. And so I did that. And I think that was, again, another gift that I didn't know that I would open later, which was I chose the wrong path. Uh, What needed to happen, happened. I had Mm -hmm. a crash because of it. And then I woke up to the beauty I get to live in now. 
And so the, the short version of that was I just was not happy. I was doing something I didn't want to do professionally. I was getting a lot of affirmation for it and had some success with it. And I was supposed to be happy, but internally mm-hmm. I wasn't happy. And things just started, that's when things started to crumble for me. And I think I referenced it earlier when I began to numb that, just the emotional pain that I didn't know what to do with. And it led me to having, you know, a breakdown where I needed to get support. And I, that's when it all started for me, the seed planted. And I didn't have a traditional route into therapy or counseling. I bucked it a little bit and had some bad experiences, which I know is pretty common. But once I got a taste of it, once I sat across from, from someone who really heard me, who really saw me and gave me the gift of emotional literacy, not because they tried to push something on me, just because they spoke a language. I thought, that's interesting. I've never heard anybody say what they feel. Never even thought of it. Mm. But when I heard it, it was just like water that I'd, I'd been mm. in the desert for a long time. I get emotional thinking back oh, on it. Emotional literacy. That's oh. so beautiful. And it it conjures the image in my mind almost of learning a foreign language, but it's a language you realize you know how to speak. You've just never heard it before. Come on. That's it. Because when somebody gives you the language that makes you go, that's how I feel, Mm. it changes everything. You go from feeling lost to to truly being found. It's It's a really incredible thing. And I think so many of us have that experience with our people. But nobody has ever slowed us down as a society to teach us to have that with ourselves. Mm. And so many people are hurting because they don't have the ability to speak to themselves in that way. Emotional literacy. I love that. I feel it's like, let's, we need a billboard. We need bumper (laughs) stickers. It needs to be a thing. Mm. That's really, really special. You, you've talked about and I and I I made notes on this because it's a term that I've used as well. And so it's a thing I wanna it's it's another little gift I wanna unwrap with you. You talk about how when you were living the good on paper life, but really not trusting your gut, really in a way, I think that that's when we turn our backs on ourselves. Mm. So if you if you were in that space where you were turning your back on yourself and doing what looked right but it was obviously making you miserable. You, you've said that you felt like you were drowning. And that's a phrase that has come to me about some of the rough stuff in my life. And I'm curious, what to you did drowning feel like? Because I know there are people who are listening to this who are going to be thinking to themselves right now, hey, me too. Words I would use to describe it today that I was ashamed of for a long time. And let me just say, I'm going to say words that might feel familiar to people, Mm. like hopeless, Mm. like just a feeling of out of control. Mm. Those are the first two that pop up, but there's probably a long list of feelings or adjectives, just sad, hopeless, Mm. angry, out of control that um, I could reflect back on. But I used to think if I were to reveal that, it would limit me some way going forward. Mm particularly publicly, because mm-hmm. I've got, I know, you know, I've shared some of this. I haven't told many people this, but just my one day I want to be able to turn what I hope is, is, is a gift into public service, whether that's politically or in some other way. And mm-hmm. I'm, I, I can't help but be, be conscious of what you reveal now is what mm-hmm. people will track back when you get ready to try to do something public with it. Mm-hmm. But now 
I don't hide from it. I take pride in it because mm-hmm. I think it's who I am. And I don't think it speaks to a story that, that makes me lesser or weaker. I think it makes me stronger. And I think it's what's missing from today's people in public service. I is agree. Everybody's terrified to say, I don't know. Or I had this issue where I struggled with this and here's mm-hmm. what I did about it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited to talk about it because one day I'm excited to bring that to light in a bigger way. I'm happy that I get to do it in the space that I'm in now, but I know I jumped ahead again because I just get excited about this topic. Oh, I love it. But I, I, you know, I think about, um, I've got a, a little boy that turned two August 2nd and he's just the pride of my life. I mean, oh, I shouldn't even have brought him into the conversation this early. Because uh, I just love him so much. I, uh, and I've been trying to teach him to swim. We, we gave him the survival lessons at like a year, which mm-hmm. are pretty hard to watch. It's not like swimming. It's like if you fall in a pool. So it's not fun. It's, mm-hmm. you know, they, um, but I'm glad they do it. It serves an important role. But now I'm on the other side of that. He picked up a few tools. I think I took him out a little early of those because I just wanted it to be fun. I so wanted it to be fun. But I, even as much as yesterday, I was in a pool with him and he's learning to tread water. He can't swim forward, but he can swim backwards. And he's, he thinks he is, a, a, he thinks he can swim. He think he's more confident than he should be. Mm. And I, that's kind of where I was at that space. But I watch him jump off into mm. water that he can't touch the bottom and he swallows water and he chokes and spits up. And that's a hard thing to watch mm. when you see somebody choking. You think about the sound. And yet I know enough to know I don't, I need to let him have some of those experiences in a safe way. (laughs) Sorry, Mm -hmm. mom. Uh, But I need (laughs) to let him have some of those difficult experiences so that he can learn what's okay, what's not okay, develop Mm -hmm. coping skills. I'm going to be there. I would never, but just watching him do it is hard to watch Mm -hmm. because I want to shield him from that experience. But that's what it felt like. It felt, if you can, if you're out there, you know what I'm talking about. If you feel like you're drowning, you can, you can physically feel it, the sounds, uh, the, the heaviness, mm-hmm. uh, the hopelessness and the struggle. And so mm-hmm. I definitely was in that space. Yeah. I hope that gave a little clear picture to describe it. I think so. And I, I think that anyone can identify with that feeling of not quite being able to catch your breath. That's yeah, Like that's you're it. just able to come up for enough air to keep going. But how long can you struggle? How long can you fight? It's and, amazing the number of people that can relate to it, mm-hmm. especially in the safety of nobody, you know, anonymity, the number of people that can relate to that feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. I think if, if, and I love that you reference people who are listening that may be feeling that right mm-hmm. now, because there's a lot of people that will try to talk you out of that experience and say, you're not alone. And, and the truth is you feel alone. Mm-hmm. And I know what it's like to feel alone. There's going to be a lot of people through their discomfort well-intended, they're going to try to say you're not alone. And all that does is isolate you even more. Because when you're feeling alone and everybody's telling you you're not, you can't help but make that, well, that must be me. I know what it's like to feel alone. Mm. And if you're out there, that's it's okay to be affirmed and validated that, yes, you're there. Guess what? I've been there too. Yeah. And I didn't think I'd find people that I could relate to and Little did I know there's a sea of people Mm. like you, and they're probably sitting on your right and left right now if you're in a public place, hoping that you might ask them so that they could feel validated Mm. because they may be feeling alone too. Yeah. I think that the lie that 
pain tells us is that if we speak it, people will lean out. They'll, they'll be somehow repulsed by it or afraid of it, and they'll lean away. And in all of my experiences and in the experiences of everyone that I know who's been brave enough to share is that when you are struggling and you finally vocalize it because you want to stop drowning, people say, they lean in and they say, you too. And it's such a powerful experience. And and I think that when we get into one of the things I love about the work that you do is you get into the brain chemistry, you get into the way our neurons are wired together and thus fire together and, and the pathways in the brain. This is science, you know, it isn't just, mental health isn't just emotional. It's really, really deeply rooted in the science of the brain, which is the most complex part of the body. And and to learn about how that works, then you understand why you want to hide, why why the brain pushes you to cope rather than to speak and all of these things, you know? So I, I think it's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm curious for you, how did you personally get your head above water? How did you get unstuck? I finally did. The favorite part of the scenario I just described with my son is, is right before the scariest moment. And so Mm -hmm. he'll tread water, tread water, tread water, and there's probably some child expert out there that's being like, what the heck is he doing? <laughs> and I'll be honest, I don't know. I'm learning as a dad and that's not my specialty, but I'm learning. But, yeah, right- but you're also, look, you're learning as a dad and you're, you're doing what the swim coaches tell you and yeah. giving it a try. <laughs> and you're, you're being there with your kid, which is such a special thing because, you know, he's not doing this by himself. But right. Thank you. One of the, the scariest moments is when they they tread water, tread water, don't find the side, and then they go under and their eyes are open. Oof. It's a creepy feeling. And it's only like a quarter of a second. I mean, it, but right when he goes under, eyes open, and it looks like what you'd see or experience. And I hope I'm being sensitive because I know drowning is such a significant issue. Um, but he, his hand pops right out of the water. And, I, and he grabs my shirt or I grab him and then I pull him up and we have a moment. And surprisingly, he recovers quite fast. That's not, he doesn't swallow water. He's learned to hold his breath. But that's what happened is Mm -hmm. I think right at the right time, I finally, if somebody showed up for me and I lifted my hand up out of the water and somebody grabbed it, Mm -hmm. they validated me. They saw me. They didn't point out what was wrong with me. They said, the fact that you're sitting here reaching your hand out, that's what's right with you. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that for the very first time, it just connected. I felt seen. I felt heard. I felt valued. I felt connected for mm-hmm. one of the first times. And then they just kept pouring it on. They were like, you're, you're really good at this stuff. You're going to be good at this. And, and I just kept waiting on them to critique the fact that I'm, I'm sitting here because I'm broken. You shouldn't be affirming me for that. And they did. And they were right. Mm. It's so, as I said earlier, anti-culture. What I love is when people like you take the risk to talk about things like this, we humanize the experience. I don't think these conversations should be reserved for a counseling office. They should be in our mm-hmm. living rooms. Yeah. Everyone deserves to be seen, heard, valued, connected. We should be talking about this stuff. Absolutely. Now, granted, I know there's a lot that doesn't demean my profession. There are certainly cases where it calls for professional support and guidance. And I hope everybody has the opportunity to do that. Because again, it's not what's wrong with you. You'd get counseling, coaching. It's what's right with you. But for those of you that can't afford it, don't have the time to do it, 
you can you can do that in community. Mm. It's a, it's it's different, but I think it's what community was always designed for. Mm-hmm. Talking circles. Yeah. So important. Mm. And I think it's also wonderful that we're having conversations, you know, even when we talk about the fight for healthcare, we're finally acknowledging that mental health is part of healthcare. We're we're getting real about the fact that people need access. We're seeing these companies be created, these these messaging apps with therapists and these hotlines where you can call in and do counseling over the phone that are really aiming to democratize access to mental health care because people need that. Our brains need that. There's a lot going on in the world and a lot of noise. And I think, you know, one of the things that makes me comfortable having these conversations is the fact that I live a life of deep gratitude. I have deep community. I am very optimistic, even if my uh, sacred rage about what's happening in our political system doesn't make it seem so. I, I believe in us. And I think because I know how lucky I am to have so much joy in my life, I am very willing to share with people the things that have not been joyful. Because so many people think, oh, that person over there has it all figured out and is happy, and I'm the one suffering. I'm like, let's talk about suffering. I'm down. You want to hear a crazy story? This is this thing that happened to me. And I think if we if we talk about it and just say, that's just part of my story. Hmm. Look at all this other stuff, all this other joy, all these beautiful people. Then we can help people realize that the thing that feels like the boogeyman is also just part of their story. It it pivots it from which it's it's the from a sickness model to a wellness model. Yeah. And behavioral health has been a sickness model for way too long. So is yeah. healthcare. And yeah. I love that it's got a stage and a platform now. But I like now that it, if you ever get a taste of the humanity side, I think well, real time. I I don't know who, but and I I only caught just a glimpse. But I I you were talking with someone and it it. I think I heard that you were offering support and listening. And I, I was like, that's my girl. Mm. You know, I didn't care a bit that you were like, give me a minute. We're going to be a few minutes late. I was mm. like, go do your thing because mm. you do that well. And I think we all need people that like you that do that for one another. Yeah. That will just hold space for you. Mm. Thanks for being one of those people for me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're both sitting here. <laughs> I mean, my God, we can't help it. Okay, so you make this big change, you you reach out, and when you say, you know, you sat across from someone, would you share, where was that? What is What does a step look like? Because that, that's a, I know what you're talking about, but I feel like for people who haven't been through the process, that might feel a little vague. So where did you begin? Yeah, so I think I, I had a few, I think I shared, I had a few false starts mm-hmm. with and I don't need to get, you know, I used to would have told those stories that, that, that just didn't fit. I yeah. said this overeager therapist and I was like, ah, I can't handle that. But I, now I'm in that profession for a long time, have made so many mistakes and I'm more just have grace on, we, we're all doing the best we can. Of course. But I had well, a, everyone's yeah. just a human. That's it. And I, I always try to recommend to people because I've had conversations about therapy with some people who've said, oh, you know, I went and I just didn't like it. It wasn't for me. And I'm like, did you marry the first person you ever went to dinner with? Because <laughs> I'm going to guess no. You have to try out some different humans and figure out who you vibe with because 
what you're cultivating with your mental health care professional is a relationship. Mm -hmm. And you have to figure out who you want to be in a relationship with. So, And you'll find it. I, it yes. It's kind of like if you ask someone, uh, do you remember a teacher that stood out for you? Think how many teachers yeah. we have from grade school, kindergarten, grade school, all the way yeah. through. And there's usually one or maybe two. It's like, that's it. Yeah. And if you can remember that, that's the therapist you're looking for. This yeah. profession is no different. It's like every other profession. You've got a wide array of talent. Mm. You've got people that are really good in certain things, certain modalities, but there's so many differences. Mm. But often the people who you think you don't connect with or have a gift for you, then that's kind of what happened for me. So mm. ultimately I sat in front of a psychiatrist because once I'd kind of debunked therapy, I thought I'll go the medical route. Because I had a learning disability growing up, and I didn't even know it was a you know pretty significant ADHD. Which somewhere along the line, I dropped the H because <laughs> I'm I've got still got the two D's on full overdrive, <laughs> but I don't have the hyperactive piece anymore. My son, I think, has got the H, but I don't know if he's going to be. But I don't look at that as um, uh, uh, as a disorder. I look at it as an opportunity. Some of our greatest leaders of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, knew how to manage that. But it, in a system that requires you to do things and not a lot of creativity to get out of the box, yeah. it can be a real challenge. And yep. you can start. So I had some of those challenges, but I thought if I go to a psychiatrist, then they can tell me medically how to, here's the step-by-step -step process to mm -hmm. be able to do this. And I just happened to catch a guy who was on the back end of his career. Uh, he was like two years from being retired, uh, highly educated, I mean, a stereotypical psychiatrist who had these little round glasses and <laughs> little elbow patches on a sweater. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, we, there was no reason why we should have connected. Mm. And I think he'd heard everything he could possibly hear in his career. And I've never, re I'd love to sit back down with him again one day or look him up and just learn more about his career. I just know I caught him on the very end and it was perfect timing for me because I needed somebody. I was so scared of my story and had so much shame in it. Mm. I needed somebody who, um, almost, I don't know how to say this other than they didn't treat it uh, so important. It was like, okay, I got it. <laughs> They'd heard it. I think mm -hmm. I met with a couple of people before that were on the edge of their chair and were so eager to try to pull my story that I was like, I was so ashamed of it. I certainly don't want you to have it. But he was almost, he was almost uninterested. Mm. And I don't know why that worked for me. I should have been, but it worked. I needed wow. somebody. I had so much shame wrapped up in my story. I needed somebody sitting over there that almost was like, okay, Heard it all before. He didn't say this, but the energy sure. I felt was like, okay, you know, he's kind of like could have taken a nap because he's heard so many people. Well, isn't that interesting that in a way his energy was almost a version of you're not special. All these other people, you know, how many people have sat across from me who've been drowning, who've had a substance issue, who've numbed like, okay. And suddenly you go, wait, I'm, I'm not a pariah. Like this, everybody does this or everybody does a version of this. The it's interesting that for you in in the state that you were in your evolution as a person and in your struggle to understand what masculinity meant, that his disinterest almost made you feel more normal. And, and looking back, I, and it's, again, some of that, it's hard to recall all of it. It probably wasn't disinterest in fairness to him, but it certainly felt that way to me. And I, and I, I had every reason to be offended by that. Perhaps I should say his being unimpressed. Unimpressed. His, his not, uh, you're right, disinterest isn't the right word, but his not being like, oh, wow. Right. Because sometimes the oh, wow is scary. It's overwhelming. It's like, you know, you, you get a drastic haircut and someone goes, whoa, and you go, that's not the reaction I wanted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Even, and I was so sensitive. 
And now that's paid off with what I do, just being yeah. around people's body. But at then mm. I could read body language and energy. I didn't even know I was doing it. I wasn't formally trained in it, but I could, mm. I felt like I could do it. And I picked up on his and I just felt like he had one foot out the door. And that was the opening I needed. I needed an opening that somebody could kind of I could drop my story out there, just what you said, and somebody would heard it before and they could catch it. But then he once he he really turned it on after that, and he was a really wise soul, and he had a way of he was constantly reframing, which mm. is what I needed to mm. hear. I, I would say something, he would take it and he would frame it in almost a positive psychology light, like he wanted me. He felt. So he knew my learning challenge and he said, you know, we could do this one of two ways. We could um, meet for 50 minute sessions for a couple years and I'm sure you'll do fine. I mean, you seem like a really smart guy or they had these intensive programs at places and you're a candidate for that because you'll thrive in it. So if you go do that, it's almost like you getting a graduate degree in yourself mm. and just, I mean, think of the ways you could have framed that. I mean, he could have said, you need more than what I can offer, <laughs> but he didn't. He was like, I really think because of the way you're wired, you'd do really well in another intense environment. And I heard it and I took advantage of it. And yeah. so I went from him to another opportunity that was kind of intensive and where you go actually stay at a place. And, oh man, you talk about shame because I didn't, you know, I thought this is, as, of course, the closest thing I'd ever seen on TV to like rehab. Oh, and that had wow. such a negative connotation in my mind. Right. And little did I know it ended up running one. And and now, of course, what I do now is not traditional rehab, but I did one before onsite. Mm -hmm. And it was some of the most beautiful work I've ever experienced in my life. And I'll mm -hmm. never look at it like rehab again. I'll look at it from now until eternity as human school. I love that you say that. So and I, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how onsite came about and and what, human school means to you? Oh, I just, when I uh, finished up an opportunity to do some intense counseling and learning, I walked away thinking, I want everybody I know to have this opportunity. Mm. And that was my goal. It was like, how do I figure out how to get all the people that I love and even people that I don't know on a big bus and bring them to where they can untether from life detox off of the pace of culture and technology and do a deep dive on who they are and who they're becoming because it was so beneficial to me. Again, it was another mm. inhale. It's like, mm -hmm. wow, why don't we do this? How did mm -hmm. we miss this? How does mm -hmm. not everybody get the opportunity? But the more I, I got into it, the more I realized that there's no way everybody's going anywhere for 30 days <laughs> unless you really need it. And I've learned that that's not, nobody needs it. Everybody deserves it. Mm. I've stopped saying that. I've changed that word. But to me, I, what I learned most was how to be more humane to myself and more humane to others, which has given me a more humane disposition towards humanity. Can you give me some practical data points on that? What is What are a couple examples of how you learned to be more humane? I, I just had a harsh dialogue. I had, I, I'm a big believer in parts work because there's a modality of therapy called internal family systems where you actually break things up in parts like there's a part of you that has this there's a part of you that has this it's not all of you there's just mm. a part of you that carries this piece and let's talk to it let's bring it into the room it just it's really a graceful way for people to see more of a whole picture of who they are and i i and i did and i still do i still have a pretty harsh inner critic but we have a different relationship now mm -hmm. and on, on most days now some days he's got me by the neck but 
a lot of, I don't, I think for a long time, I thought the only way I'll ever feel okay is if he, I kill him. And that was my strategy for a long time. The enemy was my inner critic. Mm. Now I've learned to be a little kinder to him. He gets a seat at the table. It's not quite as loud. It's got a small seat at the very mm. end, but I've just, that he's not the problem. It's my relationship with him. That's the problem. Mm. And I gave him so much power. Uh, but I, I've just, when I say more humane to myself, it's just more kind and more graceful mm. coming in. And I've learned that I can't genuinely do that with you until I'm integrated and learn how to do it with myself. So it's a constant practice of putting down the microscope, picking up the mirror, and just learning how to be a better human being. Putting down the microscope and picking up the mirror. That's a good one. Mm. That's a really good one. How do you think that people who are listening and curious about this, what's a way to start that? What's a way to start having a different relationship to our inner critic how do think, we look in the mirror more kindly? I think there's a lot of creative uh, ways to go about it, but you said it earlier when you said talking circle, which is it, 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 the, the power is when we are the only one that knows it hmm. and we hang on to it so tightly because God forbid if we were to share that, and I'm not talking about just saying I have an inner critic. Most everybody has an inner critic and we can all relate to it, but I'm talking about Give it a name. Give it a voice. What does it say to you? You need to know that about that. You need to know my dark days of when it's speaking the loudest. And mm -hmm. I've learned it's the more I, it's kind of like stress. The more I offload it, the less it gets to be internalized, compound, and then come out the other way. And so I think if you just simply find somebody to introduce that part of yourself to, and it's not, it's not all of you always keep that in mind. It's not this broken part of you that you have to go share. It's just, can I tell you about this part of me that just really eats my lunch sometime? Mm. And it may not, and it, it may not be a one-time thing. I need to introduce it. I need to introduce it as much as I need to introduce it with a safe person who will listen and not try to fix it or change it. That's key. And that's hard to do. I mean, there is an art to listening, but that's what people need more than anything. It was going back to what we shared earlier when people feel alone and we tell them they're not, that's not what we need when we're in pain. We need validation mm. and affirmation. That's what quiets that voice. So if someone says, I feel so alone, what is the appropriate response? Because I, I, I know and I feel what comes up in me while I'm listening to what you're saying is I think, okay, then perhaps the right thing to say is, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. I also want you to know I'm here. I know that's not making you feel less alone, but day or night you can always call always pick up, you know, whatever, whatever version of that, that we want to offer to the people we love when they're struggling. But is that right at all? Or, or is there a better way to acknowledge that feeling for somebody mm. and make sure they know they're support, they're supported? How do we, how do we do that better? I just, I just caught myself and you may have seen it, uh, mm. where, before you were finished telling me how you responded, I had come up with a counter response to tell you whether it was right or wrong. Mm. You see my eyes went up and I grabbed something I was about to, and I was like, whoop, I, I pulled myself back because I wanted to listen to that. Mm. I just wanted to listen and take a breath and be like, I hear that. And mm. I don't need to have the right answer for it. I just need to hear it. And so, yeah, that's the right, that's, that's the right way. That's a right way to do it. And what I've learned is it's, so another way would be like, I, I understand 
and then providing some data points on how you understand. And if you if you mm-hmm. don't, you know, you don't need to uh, manufacture that if you mm-hmm. haven't felt that. But try to get in touch with. There's not many people going through stuck, struggling, and painful situations that I can't I can't find a connection point to. Mm-hmm. Even when I've sat across from people that have done the worst of the worst, that have been that are in penitentiaries on death row, done ungodly things. And yet I can relate to a part, I can find a part of their story I can relate to. Mm. And I think everyone can do that. So that's the key. It's not as much the words, it's more the energy behind the words. Mm. And if they're genuine, if they're real, then it's okay. First of all, take a risk to be clumsy. Don't try to think about the right thing to say. This is just one, it's not advice. It's just something I've learned when I try not, I just always think, how do I validate people by being able to mirror a part of my story that they hopefully can relate to? Mm. And sometimes it's as simple as, and I'm just nodding right now because I know we're on audio, but it's just like a, just an affirming nod, Mm. listening, hold them. Yeah. Yeah, Not, not trying to have an answer, but offering support. Mm. It's a perspective shift, but it can really offer, I think, a lot of grace to people who are going through something. Yeah, the eyes, the eyes say a lot. And there, there's a powerful, I forget who did it. I wish I could give credit to it. I love showing this clip when I'll do a talk. Uh, but it, basically they did a, it may have been Soul Pancake, but I can't remember. They did a, I'll find it so you can put it in the footnotes yeah, just to we'll, give them credit because we'll, we'll they deserve in. credit. It's powerful. And I'll, I'll send you the link later. But it's basically, they do a social experiment where they take couples that have known each other for 70 years to some that have been dating for a year, some complete strangers, and they sit them in front of each other for four minutes of silence. And, and they, eye contact. And eye contact. And they yes. just, yeah, they just, si- oh yeah, silence and eye contact. And they just watch what happens. And it is powerful. Mm-hmm. We do an exercise like that you know, mm-hmm. back at, at onsite, but to see it done in real time, there's these things called mirror neurons. And that's the biggest hug you could give somebody mm-hmm. is to be able to mirror their reality without words sometimes. That's so special. So when we talk about onsite, one of the things that you unpack for people there is trauma. And I want to talk about the definition of trauma because I think that so many of us associate the word trauma, the brain then immediately thinks of PTSD, and then we think about veterans who obviously are a population who suffer from immense PTSD. But we assume, most of us who've never been to war, that obviously we can't have trauma or post-traumatic stress because we've Mm -hmm. never been to war. And now all the data and all the science is showing that women who've been sexually assaulted carry just as much PTSD as war veterans, that people everywhere in society are suffering from post-traumatic stress effects. And the actual medical definition of trauma is anything which is not nurturing. And there's, there's from the literature that I was able to look at with you guys, I find this to be very interesting. It reads, we know that trauma is a much broader phenomenon than was once imagined. It is defined as any experience that creates feelings of overwhelmingness and or an event that is perceived as life-threatening. That widens the scope, I think, for so many people. And as we referenced earlier, so many of us think, well, I don't deserve to feel this way. Mm -hmm. 
nothing in my life is really that wrong. My life looks so good on paper. Why do I feel like I'm drowning? How, how do you begin to teach people about trauma? And can you talk a little bit for people who may not know about how our bodies hold on to trauma? Well, I, I love that that kind of definition because it's such a broad scope of anything other than nurturing. But if I'm ta- depending on who I'm talking to, mm-hmm. and we've been doing more education on trauma-informed care, and there's a lot smarter people in my organization uh, that that talk about the science behind it. I mm-hmm. I live in and out of that world enough that um, I can't recall like some of the the friends that I know you've met back in Tennessee with Carlos and Cindy and others, but Carlos, my bear. Yeah. I know you were hoping you might be part of this and maybe at some other time, but Mm. yeah, he's such a special soul and so knowledgeable on the topic, Mm -hmm. but I've had to learn it as someone who leads an organization that that's the framework that we look through in order to help support people in change. Mm -hmm. And depending on who I'm talking to, I might just swap the word out with adversity or compound stress. Mm -hmm. People can relate to that a little bit more. And then you Mm -hmm. kind of start walking down the road of here's what trauma is, but there are varying levels of it. And so I think not everybody is, has diagnosable PTSD, but more people do than we think. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's invasive and intrusive symptoms that would interrupt our daily life, like you know, sleep and night terrors and a lot. And, and the, there's a pretty significant long list of symptoms. But it's where I started learning about trauma was when I had the opportunity to run uh, a residential alcohol and drug program. And this we also, was the place you worked before right. on site. And Got we it. also had a small um, nine bed uh, program for eating disorders specializing in anorexia and bulimia. And we just were doing very light educational trauma. Most of it was all, I didn't realize it at the time, well-intended, but we were we were treating symptoms, just trying to arrest whatever was going on on the surface without ever unraveling the narrative. Mm. And I'm telling you, I, I found with addiction clients, eating disorder clients, and plug in another mental health, it was 100 out of 100 had experienced life adversity, had experienced trauma in some way. And we just didn't know how to treat it mm-hmm. at the time. And because, we're medicating their compound stress. That's right. Wow. And often, uh, you know, another, it's interesting, we have a program that we offer, one of our programs we offer for veterans every year for free. Mm-hmm. And we've been researching that. And these are, a lot of these are combat men and women who've been, mm-hmm. or combat uh, vets, men and women who've been in combat and affected by it. And some of them are diagnosed with PTSD and some of them aren't. It's fascinating mm-hmm. that you can take two people and put them in a combat situation. One can come home with a diagnosable version of post-traumatic stress disorder and one copes and adjusts in a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's always been fascinating to me. But what we've learned is that I was nervous because that's a week-long program. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what can we do for people who have seen extreme things in one week besides give them hopefully some education and some hope? Can we really go deep and expect to be able to open things up and put things back together in a way that would be uh, productive? And what we found, so I was nervous about opening up combat uh, trauma because it wasn't our specialty. Our specialty is trauma, but there's all these nuances of you get really good at certain arms of it, but ultimately Mm -hmm. trauma is trauma. And what we found with most of the vets that we supported is rarely, if ever, did we touch the combat. Most of these men and women who came back with significant adverse circumstances from having experienced combat had, had trauma earlier in their life. Yeah. So they had been imprinted somewhere along the way that made them a little bit more susceptible mm-hmm. to once they, and it, it also made them more susceptible to go into a high risk situation. Mm-hmm. 
But once they were in it, it made them twice as acceptable in order to develop those symptoms later on. So we found way more success. And surprisingly, most of the people who were pouring into and I, I military is an easy example because that's where a lot of people think when they think PTSD, mm-hmm. you, you referenced that earlier, is we thought um, that we we got, we had better results. And when we looked out there, what was happening in the veterans community, most everybody was treating combat trauma. Nobody Mm -hmm. was going back. And so we found this niche that if we can go back and if you've experienced sexual abuse, when you were 14, 15, 16, you can't ever have a chance of healing this experience unless you get the opportunity to heal this one. And many times when we had an opportunity to rewrite that part of their narrative, we didn't even have to do much with the combat. Mm. It was amazing. The brain is unbelievable with its ability to heal itself. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I believe a lot of uh, a lot of therapy, traditional therapy, and I'm not picking on any modality because they all have their place. Mm. It's it's speaking into the wrong side of the brain and what we know that holds trauma. The way that I think about it, and I, I it took me a while to kind of ideate on this, and a lot of people asked because I've talked about going and doing this week retreat with you at onsite. Um, Cause you know, I'm, you know, and probably most of you guys listening, but just in case you've been under a rock while I talk about all this stuff, I, I clearly love to nerd out on science. I, I want to know all the data. I want to read all the research studies. I just love it. And so to go somewhere and really get to be a student and learn about the brain and neuroplasticity and trauma and body, bodily response and all of it felt like, it felt like such a gift for me. Mm-hmm. And in trying to figure out how to explain to people what the difference was between a week of a deep dive like we did and traditional talk therapy or any of the other sort of books on psychology that I've read over the years, what I realized is this, that so many of the modalities we have easier access to, and even when you talk about this you know, extreme genre of most places trying to treat combat PTSD with veterans, if you think about it like a tree, the place in the brain that's been affected, most people are are grooming the leaves. And what you're talking about is getting to the base of the root system. And if you heal the roots, the entire tree heals. Mm. But if you're just cleaning up the leaves, everything underneath is still growing. It's all still connected. It's all still carrying water. And, and so to get into the parts of the brain where these neural pathways formed much earlier in life and start to do healing work there, it changes how it, it affects the end of the pathway naturally. Mm. I love that. That's so well said and such a good picture. And, and if you think about it, that, that tells you there is a place for cognitive oriented process mm. because it, it, it makes the ground fertile. Uh, because mm. you know, the thing about, if you think about leaves as a tree, you're supposed to leave them alone because they have a purpose. They mm. fall from the tree, they get decay the ground, they keep the soil warm or cold, mm. cool. And so you're, that's forest, you know, that's an ecosystem. And mm. so they have their place too. It's just preparing for a deeper dive at some point. So the people that often have a lot of success with um, our modality are people who've done a lot of talk therapy, but they've never really had an opportunity to see their story three dimensionally. Mm. And, uh, that's all we try to do is anything that you tell us, we want to show it to you mm-hmm. so that you can actually see it. And we access again, the root system or the lower third of the brain and begin to start processing and moving some of that trauma so that it begins to heal itself. That's so cool. So 
in these workshops, because this is always the next question, people go, well, what is it for? And then people say, well, what do you mean you're in a group? And you are, you're, you're workshopping in a group of seven or eight people and a, and a therapist, a workshop leader. And people are really getting into their history. They're revealing things about themselves, the way they process, how they grew up, how their relationship was with their parents. And everybody's sort of mind blown about that and wants to know how that works. So how does it work? How do people feel the trust that they feel? And and what do you think are the benefits of sharing experience, struggle, questioning in community like that? I think there are a lot of wonderful therapeutic offerings out there. And I, in my experience, and, and I was one of these until we, we shifted our paradigm a bit, and I think our outcomes are better for it. Mm. We, we don't collectively as a field, we don't spend as much time curating psychological safety into the environment and into the experience because we get so hyper-focused on what we know we get comfortable with the modality that we've been trained in mm. and we overprescribe. And I've learned that agenda with a trauma victim is counterproductive. Mm. And so there has to be a space of feeling held and a trust that everybody's born with a process. And in that process that I think we're all wired with the ability to heal ourselves, given the right guide, given mm. the right tools and given the right opportunity. And so what we started doing was spending as much time curating psychological safety emotional safety in our environment as we do sharing clinical expertise. Mm. It's, I think they're equally as important. Hence uh, our hospital, everybody, our hospitality effort, our, the people, mm. I mean, people need to feel loved, nurtured and securely attached mm -hmm. in order to heal. And that's what we're trying to do. If you look at it through an attachment lens is yeah. take insecure attachment, create secure attachment. And that often doesn't happen in the clinical work. It happens with everything around it. So we get, we kind of nerd out on that and try to be like, what do we need to do to create safety? And ironically, what do you think the number one thing is? It's that microscope mirror moment. It's, mm -hmm. we could, we, there's, it's not a, here's a three-step strategy. There are things you can do as a business to be trauma-informed, which I love that there's more companies outside of our space that are becoming trauma-informed, mm -hmm. school systems and government agencies. But you have to go from doing to being. So that's why every one of the therapists that work for us, they have long letters behind their names and they're trained and awesome. And we look for people who are willing to do their own work. Not do it once and check it off the list, but they see themselves as a student of the game. And every year they put themselves in the seat of the people that are there to serve. Yeah. And so that's not just our therapists, that's our drivers. And that's everybody in our organization is we want everybody yeah. to be a work a process, to be a work in process so that we're doing our mm -hmm. own work. And energetically that creates psychological safety. And I think there's something, oh, it's such a gift that you share that because so many people assume if I could just get better, if I could just fix this, if I could just have that, if I could just have the partner, if I could get the job, if I could do the thing, then I'd be happy forever. But it is a process and every, every step that you climb on a ladder, then you're at that process level. And I think it's really got to be relieving. I know it's relieving to me to hear that even the best trained professionals, the best trauma experts and therapists and, and psychologists should and are in work every year going into 
a facility like this and doing a process like this, making sure they maintain a therapeutic practice. That's so important because so many of us think that if we can just solve it, it'll be solved. And that's not how this stuff works. It's not how anything works, really. It does make the best trauma practitioners those that do their own work. You need the skill set clearly and the education and mm. the science. But if you can com- com- uh, if you can couple that with doing your own work, it kind of makes you a little bit unstoppable. And it makes it more fun. I mean, it, it, it gets exhausting to try to hold up an expert hat like you're dropping in information from 10,000 yeah. feet. Nobody really trust an expert anyway I and mean, we all kind of want to be at their feet because it's fine i'm guilty too it's like i've got these people i really look up to and they've earned their way there because they're dropping wisdom bombs on all of us but i i love experts who make you feel like you're equal like you're human and it's not all that common i will say the the mental health space that's not a widely accepted practice still mm-hmm. uh it it's gotten better and mm-hmm. there is a place um for proper disclosure and learning what part of your journey should you share something and what part is oversharing all that stuff is relevant but there are way too many people who well I found this as when I got into the field I was a few years into the field and I, there were men and women who I would call on when I was way too green to be running an organization even a small one mm. and I, I couldn't believe I had the opportunity and I didn't know what I was doing. And so when it came, I didn't know how to run a back office or a business or hire and fire people. I didn't know any of that stuff. So I would call mm-hmm. these mentors who've been in the field for 30 years and be like, how do you do that? Man, they had an answer for that. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. Mm-hmm. But when I started struggling and I started dealing with the same stuff that got me into the field to begin with, in other words, I was running through relationships. I was kind of turned into a workaholic, starting to feel some depressive symptoms, all in the name of helping people. Mm-hmm. And I called these same men and women. And I was like, I got silence and people didn't know what to say to that. And suddenly I I started, I had this identity crisis as a professional in in my field because I looked at the heroes and, and this is not all, I'm not bundling everyone together, but I would look at people that I looked up to and I thought, I want to be where you are in 30 years and receive an award for doing this and doing that. Mm. Um, but I don't really good helper. But I don't want to do it at the cost of being on my fourth marriage and being estranged from my adult kids and running through relationships. And that's what I was seeing was that was a picture. You choose one or the other. You either have a shitty life and uh, you become a great helping professional or you become a great helping professional. And so I was like, there's got to be a way to do both. Yeah. And that's the a journey that I've been on ever since. It's like, I don't want to do it at the cost of me. No. Because it's sending the wrong message out. Well, you know, they say on the airplane, put your mask on first. Mm. It's really important because if we break ourselves down in order to serve others, we're not serving others, then we're just codependent. Yeah. And I thought when I got into our space, I pedestaled, and that was my, I pedestaled therapists because I mm-hmm. thought they must be living the good life because they just have all this knowledge and they know things. Mm-hmm. And and then I got into the field and I had, I just realized they're, we're all hot messes, you know, just like yeah. everybody else. It's just, <laughs> though I, and I trust a therapist who's a hot mess as long as they know their mess. Yeah. That's a, it, great. You don't have you to be good at everything. your mess, great. That's it. Because I think that's, again, that's a thing. We assume it's one or the other. The most capable, brilliant, joyful, and successful people in the world also have mess. Yeah. And if you just know what your mess is, you can you can go crush it. You can run a boardroom. You can start a company. You can have a successful marriage. You can do whatever you want to do. But you also have to acknowledge that you have a mess. Everybody's got one. 
And I think you, acknowledging it is 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 a huge step. And I think I, I set an acknowledgement phase for a long time. And then I think you have to move into transformation too. So mm-hmm. I think I see a lot of people who get in, and I'm, I'm one of them because I love new information and I'm a seeker. And I think at some point we have to have permission to be a finder. We have to start harvesting some of the mm-hmm. things that we sow and plant or else you can kind of get stuck on a little bit of a hamster wheel constantly looking for what's going to make me whole. That just gave me the chills mm. because I do think there is now more acceptance in the acknowledgement of your stuff. But how do we go from being willing to acknowledge the good, the bad, and the ugly to finding new modalities and methodologies? How do, how do we go from seeking to finding? A lot of us that get into this space that are curious, I say, you know, and I'm not talking about professional, I'm talking about personally, those that get into a personal growth, curious oriented, chasing our own story, how do we better be better humans? We get into it because we're probably good at it. We're pretty mm-hmm. good at introspection. I can look down into my story. Um, that can be a double edge if we're not careful uh, because it, it, you can end up ruminating and spending too much time on it. So I mm-hmm. had a wise uh, therapist just recently tell me, uh, my wife and I were together doing some couples therapy and we were just kind of hung up and I was really coming from a survival place because I think I shared, I've got a new little boy and we got a little girl too. And so new family and just anyway, these things were up. And I was, I was a so astute in this session. I was like just using all my jargon and I say using it. I I wasn't trying to hide behind it. I genuinely use it as a framework, but she just, you know, she kind of just stopped me and said, I I think you need permission. It's, It's okay to be curious. And at some point, give yourself a break and stop looking so much. Because I, I needed that. I needed somebody to say, go be a dad, enjoy this. It's going to be messy. You're going to screw it up. Mm. You don't have to go all the way back to when you were 14 every time. Now, I'm, I'm nervous about saying that because most people don't do the, the scope back in. So please don't hear that I'm demeaning that process. It's mm. the most important process of my life. Yes. And I think there's this, everybody deserves to do it and it takes what it takes. It takes a lot of time. I'm somebody and I'm just saying that, that you can overdo it too. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, well, it's 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 a, in a way, it's a version of an overprescription. In a sense, you know, when when you've gone through the cycle, but then you say, after the cycle is over, well, but it's still this, and it's like, or maybe you're just having a day as a dad. Maybe it's just today. But and I, both things can be true, mm. but if we're only looking at the the root of the root at the thing that happened at 14 or 16 or eight or whatever it happened to you. If you keep looking at that, you're, you're in a way you're not in the present as much. Yeah, the idea of it is to move it into action. Yeah. I still am a believer of continually doing your own work. Mm-hmm. I don't think you just you know, age out of it, but I think no. there are seasons when life's going really well and I go yeah. in and I do something different than seasons when life is difficult. And that's mm-hmm. just a different process. So I'm a believer, but I'm a believer at some point of putting it into action and transformation. Sure. Not using the past as a crutch, but using it as a conduit to change. That's one of the things that, and I think one of the, the and I brag on it way more than I critique it because I think it's one of the coolest, most successful movements in our history, uh, which is the 12 step movement. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. 
it's a way I wish church looked like. I mean, it's a circle of people who are incredibly just honest and uh, they affirm one another for being really honest. And if you've mm-hmm. never been to an op- open 12 step meeting, I'd highly encourage it just, just to see it and experience it. But one thing I see often in my uh, friends and brothers and sisters in that community is that we get a little hung up sometimes on that as an identity. And so it's not flawless. And so if I am addict, alcoholic for my entire life, I've had people come to us that have been 15, 20, 30 years in recovery that have never done their stage two work, the relationship trauma work. And they're so hardwired and ingrained uh, with that language uh, that they tell me they're an alcoholic uh, in all the other diagnoses that may follow before I ever even hear their name. And all, often our work is, well, who are you beyond that identity? And so I think ultimately everything we're doing is trying to take us back home to our true identity and who Mm. we are. The labels serve a purpose, but they should never be a crutch. I love that. They should never be a crutch. You mentioned something earlier that I I just find really interesting and I want to touch back on before we move away from it completely. You mentioned that when people come to onsite, they do a digital detox and I'm a big fan of a digital detox, but I'm very curious how you've seen the response to that practice shift, especially in the last couple of years when, you know, people's identities are kind of wrapped up in their phones. What role do you see technology playing in our mental health? Significant. But again, I think it it gets a little bit of a bad rap. I, I and, and, and some of that's earned, mm. but I do think that it's technology again. It's not the problem. Our relationship with it is the problem. And it's the, it just came along at a time in culture where we systemically have all this stuff below the surface. And this is just the next option for us to numb mm. pre gambling, pre alcohol, pre everything else that we might use to numb. It's just one more option, but there's mm. a, I'm more curious about why are we numbing to begin with? It's a more creative, complex system that can hook almost anybody. I mean, it's, scary how much it can hook us, me, you know, but, um, I think it plays a major role, but what's changed about it, which is really fascinating and interesting is that we were early adopters in having people come for a week long process and, and you, you turn your phone in, we don't have it on, turn it off the whole time. And before it was cool or even socially accepted. And so early on, I can't tell you the business we lost because of that. Mm. there were people and I so much so I thought about changing it at one time because I was just my early days I was really worried about it and it was when cell phones were taken off and when you tell somebody on the phone oh yeah you show up and you're not gonna have your phone for an entire week that I thought nobody's gonna come and people did have a hard time with it and now it's kind of working the other way there are people that want to come just to give us their phone they're actually people will call and say I don't want to do any of that therapy stuff I just want to give you my phone for a week because I'm they're just exhausted mm. and plugging it in at the bedroom at night is not giving them enough relief. Nope. So I, I, I think the digital detox is vital. And I think what happens when we get a break from anything that we use to medicate emotion or numb emotion is that it gets more priority and anything that gets more priority has a better chance of changing. So one of the reasons we probably won't change this technology issue that we're seeing that's causing some havoc, particularly with our younger generation is we're not talking about it enough. Mm. I see many segments on it now. I love consuming news in the morning. I like the Today Show is usually the one I watch. But I, 
they're all great, but they, it, the, you're seeing more segments on the dangers of social media, but they're mm-hmm. still micro compared to all everything else we're talking about. And until it gets balanced to where we spend more time on it, our brain won't think it's important. And then mm-hmm. we'll start to change it like we did our behaviors around nicotine and tanning beds and all the other stuff that was horrible for us. Mm-hmm. It just took a while before we got a better relationship with it. And when you talk about how people feel exhausted, that sounds like burnout to me when somebody says, I just need to give you my phone for a week because I can't cope anymore. You've said that when people come in or exhibit signs of burnout, rather than asking them what they love about their job to kind of motivate them, you ask them what they're missing at home, Hmm. which I think is so interesting because so many of us feel burnt out because of work. So for listeners... How how can people start to figure that out? Because maybe they don't know the answer, but what, what are the ways to look in to that question? Not what do you love about your job, but what are you missing at home or, or in your life, in your personal life, whatever term feels right there? I've learned in my process that when I feel stuck on a behavior or when I'm struggling or feeling overwhelmed about something, a comfort go-to is to scapegoat. So Mm -hmm. I need to scapegoat something and make it the problem. And I see that happening a lot with work. It's not now I've, I'm a recovering workaholic. So I, but I even see it in our organization because we, we attract in our company, a lot of passion junkies. They're just on fire about Mm -hmm. trying to help change people, usually searching for their own story. And again, that's not a bad thing. It's only bad if you don't know about it, but it's an easy place to overwork because you just, you just fall in love with it. And a lot of careers are. But that's, that's, it's counterintuitive, but instead of exploring your relationship at worth, exploring what's missing that would cause you to want to spend more time at work. Mm. Usually it's the other, there's something there. It's just giving us information, which is usually what behavior does. It just gives out of control behavior, overwhelming behavior is really giving us great information about some other area of our life. Case in point, technology's got the best of me recently. Mm-hmm. And I've been spending too much time on it. It's embarrassing to say, cause I'm in the business of helping people deal with that. And this is one of those things that I've been a little bit stuck in the process on and not moving into change. I almost got, so I would own this three years ago. I'm not starting to see that I'm, cause I was anti in the beginning. And then I realized, okay, we're not, millennials aren't going to care about us at all if we don't start paying attention to technology and learning to use it as a communications tool. Mm -hmm. And so we started doing it. And then I got right in there and it was a way I could numb out at home. I'm talking about the past. It's it's a way I can numb out at home. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was an invader into my marriage invader in, and I noticed it when my, and this is a story I think I've only shared one other time because it's, I still have shame about it, but I've had a lot of people say me too. So it's, uh, I remember, I don't even know the age of my son, but I want to say he was probably, it was less than a year old and I was holding them in one hand and holding my phone in the other. And I was looking at it probably at a work email or who knows what. And he just took his little hand up and turned my face and pulled it away from the phone and looked right towards him. Mm. And, uh, I thought, wow, he gets it. I mean, he gets, he needs focus and attention right now and he gets that I'm distracted and something that's not benefiting me and it certainly has the potential to hurt him. So that woke me up, but it didn't necessarily change it. So information alone doesn't always create sustained change. Mm -hmm. So I've just, it's taken me getting to a place where I'm finally starting to create behavior change, which is neat. I'm doing things different. Mm -hmm. And that's where, interestingly enough, I, 
I'm an experiential guy. I love doing somatic work and the, you know, accessing the lower third. I've done a mountain of that. But what I needed in this was cognitive coaching. I needed somebody helping me shift some basic behaviors around my phone to help me change the relationship with it. What was some of that advice? What did that coaching look like? Well, I've got a coach now and she's, she's amazing. And she's coached at a high level. She's coached CEO. I can't believe she took me on as a client. I was so excited. And, uh, I felt so, it felt so ridiculous for me to bring her in our first session. I'm spending too much time on my phone and I'm not sure how to stop it. Mm. I mean, because I'm talking to somebody who's counseled great entrepreneurs and I was like, I needed to bring her some kind of high level, sophisticated something, you know, and, and, but she told, she validated me right away. And she said, what do you think every one of these fortune 100 CEOs bring me? Mm. Basic stuff. And the difference in her and a therapist is accountability, which I needed. I invited Mm. it. I knew I wanted it, but I needed it with nurture. I didn't need somebody to hold me accountable. I wanted somebody to hold me close. And that's what she does. She calls me and she doesn't call me out. She calls me in, which I, I love. And so I need somebody to follow up me and say, how are you doing with that tonight? And she didn't hit me over the head with it, but she certainly wants to know. Meaning phone doesn't go in the bedroom anymore for me, mm-hmm. which has been a big change. And so, yeah, sorry, I went on a... No, I love that. I, and I actually, I just admitted this to a friend over dinner last night. I was saying that I had created a new relationship with my technology because I, I have a no TV in the bedroom rule. That's just, we don't do that. But my phone and then my Apple Watch and then my iPad and all the things I was bringing into my bedroom and reading the news for an hour and falling asleep and like dropping my phone on my face. And I wake up and there's texts and notifications and news articles and think so much. So I stopped doing that and I started plugging my devices in in the kitchen and I allowed myself to bring my phone into the bathroom with me. So the last moment I could check the phone was if I was brushing my teeth at night, but I'd plug the phone in in the bathroom and the added benefit of that is when the alarm goes off, you got to get up and get out of bed to turn it off so you stop snoozing. But then what I found was that I would immediately be on my phone because it was my alarm. So then I stopped using the phone as the alarm. I would plug it in in the bathroom and I I started using an alarm clock. And then because of work, uh, I was working on this movie back in April in New York and I was gone for, I don't know, four or five weeks and I was using my phone as my alarm clock every day. And I have been back on that habit of having my phone in my bedroom next to my bed every single day since. It's amazing how quick. It's just quick and you change it. And I just, it's its kismet that we're talking about this because I said this to my friend last night. I said, I have to go back to the regiment of not having my phone in my room. And I think I just have to commit to my room being a screen-free zone, period. That's so good. And it's so, and I, I think if we could all do that, because what this represents is busy. And what we're missing in our life right now and in our brains particularly is margin. And we're desperate for margin. We need it. Mm. I mean, it supports us in every, it supports our ability to be intimate, to connect. I'm not just talking about with another, I'm talking about with ourselves to reflect, to create. And it doesn't matter if it's social media, it doesn't matter. And it's counterintuitive because in a way it's what creates white noise for me. Give me on a scroll on Instagram and I can like numb out. But Mm -hmm. that, our brain doesn't know the difference in numbing out and busy. It's just equating to more work, Mm. more busy, not to mention the blue light, but it, 
for, for me, I've looked, I've stopped looking at it like social media is bad. It's like my brain needs a break. And, and one of the only ways I can break, give it a break is to be intentional about carving out margin. And I can't do that on my own. Mm-hmm. I've got to have somebody following up with me, mm-hmm. whether it's a friend. I mean, it, for me, I'm using a coach. Not everybody can do that, but it could be a friend. It could be who's going to give you some loving accountability to support you. It's important to get to get some space. Somebody asked me recently how much time I spend every day letting myself be bored, and I laughed. Yeah. And I realized that my schedule is, at this point in my life, down to increments of five-minute breaks in between things, and it's not enough. And so I'm starting to try to figure out how to carve out time that I actually calendar and allot for quiet, because otherwise I won't have any. The world doesn't mm. encourage us to do that anymore, no. and so we have to choose it. And it and it really does require uh, some strong arming, whether it's a coach or or a calendar break or whatever. I think none of us are alone in that. Well, I started. It's the same example we talked about earlier with "Don't ask yourself what's wrong with work; ask yourself what you're missing at home." Uh, it, don't ask yourself why you're not creating margin in your brain. Ask yourself what happens when you do. Mm. Because for me, when I have quiet, no phone produces some anxiety. I start thinking, my head starts rolling and I was like, I don't like this feeling. Mm. And so instead of looking at it like, that's a problem, let me go over here back to this solution. It's okay. Well, let me talk to somebody about that problem and figure out if there's another way. Mm. Can I learn to breathe? Can I learn to medicate or meditate? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Can I learn uh, to read, you know, to start consuming information the old school way? I kind of stopped consuming information. I didn't even recognize it, but I, I had friends and because just my profession, I end up getting, and it's, it's, it, I used to love that. I would get, when friends mm-hmm. would write a book, they would, I'd get the, the copy from the publisher yeah. and they would be like, could you an advance copy? And I was like, this is so cool. People send me their work and I get to read it for other people. Did. I got to where I couldn't read anything. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was like, what is going on that reading makes me feel anxious. That used to be comfortable. And so mm-hmm. I'm having to rewire all that behavior in order to just recenter. That's so cool. That's really cool. And you mentioned, you know, when you talk about how even these people who we consider to be super high level and successful are dealing with all these same issues. Do you think that more people and more companies, because you talked about going in and speaking, you referenced it earlier, speaking at some of these companies about being informed in the mental health space. Do you think that people and companies are emphasizing the importance of mental health in ways that could be sweeping? Or are, are people making this a priority? It's happening more today than I've ever seen it, which mm-hmm. is really exciting. There's been some pioneers in that, that, that are Ariana Huffington with Thrive Global and, and others that are trying to make a play at art. How do we affect change? Well, mm-hmm. we can, we stop ignoring emotional intelligence, which Goldman's been talking about since the late eighties, early nineties, this information has been around for a little while and it was actually packaged quite well. It just never traveled. And now it's starting to travel and mm-hmm. it's by demand. I think we're more disconnected than we've ever been as a, as a culture. So it's almost like a have to now, but it, it's companies aren't going to, I don't know that we've gotten fine tuned enough where it's affecting profit, which would get this part, the prefrontal online enough for you to make a change. But it does affect profit. I mean, I've got a whole look, I mean, look at my nerdy homework over here. You guys can't see this. I have a whole page <laughs> of just stats, but 
There's a stat in here that says that mental illness costs America $193 billion in lost earnings per year. Yeah. Oh, no, it, so, it, it, it does. You're right. Of and course, I, it's I, affecting us as humans. I mean, look at the world, the anxiety, the depression, suicide rates, suicide rates among veterans, mass shootings. People are hurting and they don't know where to put it. And it is coming out at the seams. But if in a capitalist society we have to affect profit in order to create change that we should just be creating on a moral basis, okay, is $193 billion in lost earnings not enough? Well, what do you think is going to wake us up to this? It's a great question, and I think it's all in how we communicate it and frame it. I don't think people pay attention as much to the cost as they do the benefit. So if I'm talking to someone who's a hard-charging entrepreneur, I need to somehow frame this in a way, depathologize it, whatever, take the woo-woo out of it, use mm. your language to bridge. I say take the woo-woo. It's not woo-woo. But bridge towards someone to say, this is how this benefits you, not yes. this is what you're going to struggle with. Same thing, it's a little bit of a, as I said earlier, positive psychology play, is we need to be able to show you this is the benefit of having a leadership or a management team that is emotionally intelligent. Yes. And not as individuals collectively. Because mm -hmm. if you have individuals that are emotionally intelligent and they're not collectively, they're not going to treat other people they're dealing with the mm. same way. So that's what's interesting is now more and more, and, and there are statistics to prove that that increases profit. Mm-hmm the more self-awareness you have within your team. Mm. So it, it is changing and the paradigm is shifting. It's just slower than I would like it to be, but I am excited about That's it. That's really good. What do you think? Because again, when I think about how that could affect companies, because obviously we all work at some version of a company. So if we change company culture, we change culture. When we look at what's covered and what's not with health insurance, for example, why why aren't mental health experts treated as being as important as the dentist or your primary care doctors? How do we push to make mental health care more affordable and accessible to make that part of your benefits at, at your company job? How How do we collectively press that forward to take better care of ourselves and our communities? I think we've had... Too many producers and not enough advocates. And mm. I, I believe that's starting to tip because there are people who are advocates in other ways that are lending their voice to mental health, which mm. is beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think we need is more people making this a priority and using their platform and their voice. And that's why I love uh, working with creatives because I think creatives have a way, regardless of the size of their platform, at commuting, communicating things to culture that make it digestible. Yeah. whether it's through song or art or film or whatever. And I, I, I love that we've become a go-to resource for that community because it, for me, mm. I, we get to plant these little seeds and that's not the goal. We're there to support the person in front of us, but you kind of can't help but think there's a good chance that if they integrate in this into their life, it's going to travel. Yeah. Because their reach and their influence is a web that you probably could never measure. And they don't have to do anything. You don't have to use their voice to say, this is good information. They just have to live a better life. Mm. I've seen that happen with an artist that sells out arenas. When they shifted something, suddenly the people they were touching in meet and greet and the, the 30,000 people they were in front of every night in arenas started having life-changing experiences because of their performance, because the person felt more whole, integrated, and connected. 
So that's the power of it to travel is using the arts, I believe, and using science and using activism mm-hmm. in order to get this message out there. And I think some things are going to have to change because it's just a very dated model. The the way the way we uh, and 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 I'm, I participate in it. I've got a successful business in the mental health space, and yet I'm not satisfied with our socioeconomic reach. But I'm raising my hand saying I'm probably not as pro- I'm probably not as active as I should be in trying to solve that. Hmm. because I'm just doing what I can. I don't often have the margin to think about, well, how do I help be a voice in alleviating this problem? Hmm. And it's not that I, I, I am discriminating against class because ironically, I, whether you're a third generation come from significant wealth or low significant, similar problems, different, mm-hmm. but similar problems. The disadvantage is that these folks can afford high level care. And often this group can't. And I think that is the inequality in it. Mm -hmm. But probably people like me calling myself out need to be in more circles, Mm -hmm. not just with people in our space, but with people like you saying, what do we do about this? Mm -hmm. How can we be a voice into this? I just think it needs to be transformed, reformed and transformed. And it's going to cause a lot of us to step out, raise our hands, just like I'm doing now and say, I'm probably not doing enough. But I will say something as as your friend and as a person who has had very good fortune of being able to experience what you do firsthand. I'm also wildly impressed because I I haven't heard any other mental health care professionals who run the kind of treatment facilities that you do say more than one time a year, I'm going to commit a week of my services free of charge mm. for artists who can't afford to come here, for veterans who can't afford to come here, for people from communities that experience generational trauma in America who can't afford to come here. And you're doing that. So while I agree with you that the industry as a whole needs to do more and that America as a nation with its laws and legislation and policy and healthcare needs Mm -hmm. to do more, I want to commend you for what you are doing because I've literally watched you save people's lives Mm And I understand when you say it's not enough, I want to be doing more, but you're doing so much more than so many other people who have the same gifts to offer that you do. So I hope, I hope you take that in. Yeah. Thank you. It gets really easy for us, for, for those of us who are helpers to feel like we're never helping enough, but we're doing a lot. I think we deserve a pat on the back for the way that we devote Mm. swaths of our lives to serving others. I I don't think we're ever, you or me or anybody in this sort of collective we uh, who lives in service is going to feel like we've done enough, but I do feel like it's really important to remember what we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I want you to remember what you do. So well said. Because last year when we did our first creatives retreat, mm-hmm. um, the one that we do together, I, there were people, you know, who shall remain nameless. Obviously, the confidentiality of the group is paramount. But there were people there who could have never right. and who might never be able to, in the current model of mental health care in America, afford a week at onsite. And you gave that away to so many people Mm. and you and Carlos and Mary and everybody, I mean, showed up for a group of people to make their lives better. And that was really Mm. incredible. Thank you. 
I just think about Miss Linda. Good morning, <laughs> y'all. She's so special. I I I, <laughs> I need to remember that, and so yeah. I thank you for that. I it is easy for me to think about. I think I used to be a little bit more involved in the mental health world. Mm-hmm. That used to be where I spoke, and then suddenly I was like, I I got I just got tired of this us sitting back with this resource waiting on humanity to come to us when they need us. Mm-hmm. And it was like, no, we need to go to humanity because they need yeah. us. And so I've been trying to more interact with other industries and other genres. And so I feel a little untethered from advocacy and what's happening in our world. And there's some people doing some amazing work, but I, mm-hmm. you're right. I, I forget that we, we, we try to do our part. And you do a certain, lot. Yeah. And I also think that that's really important because people who know what you do, know what you do. But it is important for folks like you to go into other spaces to show people that there's a door they could walk through that they may have never seen. Mm. You know, you have to illuminate the doorway for people to know that they can go through it. And and I think that that is really important. Just the other night before it came out, I got to see this documentary about Ram Dass. And it's this beautiful film about his journey into being this meditator and to opening this space that he holds for people. And and he's so incredible. And this woman afterwards was saying, you know, there's so much in the world and I do want to love people and I, I do want to come from these high ideals, but I'm angry and, and there's devastation and look what this administration is doing to people. And I just feel paralyzed. I don't know. I don't know what to do. And love. I don't feel like I'm going to love a dictator out of office, you know? And it was a Q and a, and the people on stage talked about, you know, how, how they sort of melt, you know, merge uh, this meditator philosophy with being a person in an imperfect world. And I got up and was like, I'm sorry, I don't have a question, but I got to talk to you and anybody else who's here. Do something. Mm. Because if you're paralyzed, they win. And if you don't know what to do, help the helpers. Do you care about the border? Volunteer with This Is About Humanity. Do you care about women's rights? Support Planned Parenthood. Do you care about, you know, and, and I started just listing off all these things. I said, you have to do something because otherwise that sacred rage that you feel is falling short of action of duty. I just think it's so important for us not to forget that there's always something that we can do. And when you're doing it, know that that's meaningful because not everybody does. I love the way you frame that up, particularly since we spend a lot of our time kind of talking about mental health. It it fits there too. It's just do something. Mm-hmm. And that something initially is for you. And yeah. when you do something for you, you do something for others. And when you do something for others, you do something for humanity. Because mm-hmm. the best person that shows up for you, you get to speak into all the causes that mean something to you. You get to push back on inequality and the things that we see out in our world. So yes. it all fits together. I mean, the way you, I, I wouldn't even connect in the dots until you were saying all that. Like, it fits so well with the idea of mental health being something that we all deserve. Mm-hmm. How do we be the best version of who we are so that we can show up for the world better? Yes. I I have this friend, Angela, who is this incredible woman. And and she was saying, um, we, we had a team of creatives and athletes together to sort of talk about the way forward. And it was this lunch that was hosted by a bunch of the women from the soccer team, our, our women's national team which is, you know, our World Cup team. Hello. And I'm like, they're just the World Cup team. Let's let's do that. And uh, we were talking about 
this role that has often existed for athletes and artists and people to be on the front lines. And we talked so much about activism for so long and then we got into self-care and mm. Angela said, you have to be strong enough to participate in the resistance. Mm. That means taking care of your mental health. That means taking care of your body. That means eating food that is nourishing to you. And it was such a reminder because I think so many of us have been cultured to believe that taking care of ourselves is selfish, that mental health care is selfish, that that eating right is restrictive, that a workout regimen is beating your body. What all of it is actually is giving ourselves what we deserve oh. so that we might advocate for the world mm. to get what it deserves. I love that. Slowing down is an act of resistance. Yeah. Self-care is an act of resistance. You're yeah. exactly right. Because everything tells us we shouldn't and can't. Yeah. So when you when you talk about the ways in which you're participating with your family, when I get to witness you be a dad and be such a good husband and love your son and love your new baby girl and and we commune and talking circle around the dinner table and we laugh and you know, not all of our conversations are esoteric about mental health in the world. <laughs> we giggle a lot. And um I see that as part of what fuels you to do the work that you do. Mm. And when you talk about conscious parenting, I know the impact that that has not just in your family, but also in the men that you, the worlds of the men that you interact with mm. who get to witness the kind of man that you are and the kind of dad that you are. And, and so many of us, so many of the female friends in your life have talked to you and talked to each other about what a great example you set for us about what we deserve in partnership. Wow. It's such a gift as a woman to have the kind of quality male allies that I have in friends like you, who not only are such good friends to me, but who set such good examples for me. The way you talk about what you want to build for the lifetime of your relationship with Vanessa, your wife, is inspiring to me in the witnessing of it. I feel like I just did a therapy session. <laughs> you do what you do. No, I, I'm, I'm serious. I've said a lot of people who know um, our friendship and people who just know we have a friendship because they've seen us talk out there in places have always just said, you know, tell me about this woman. And I said, she's, she's a truth teller and she'll tell it to you. And not only will she speak it when it's in resistance and challenging and not popular, but she'll look you dead in the heart. And uh, say what you probably always long to hear. You have a gift in doing that. <laughs> and I'm grateful to be a recipient of it. So, That's so kind. Thank you. I'm just grateful to be a witness. I'm lucky. Mm. So I have two more questions for you. Um, one, post, you know, Uplift Love Fest. But <laughs> just because we we were talking about how the system needs some readjusting. Yeah. And, and I, I went into the tangential, I need you to know your worth as, as a man and as my friend because you're doing so much for the world. Uh, because I, I am so aware of the access that you offer people that isn't offered. But so many of the people listening won't have access to programs like this. And I'm curious what you can tell people who can't go away to a workshop for seven days or 30 days, um, who maybe can't go see a therapist once or twice a week. 
or even who don't have communities like ours in Friends where they feel safe sharing, where can people start on a journey to mental health care access? I'm so glad you asked that because this was something that I didn't even realize I was doing unconsciously early in my career because mm. of anything, anything, when you take a risk as an entrepreneur and you have, uh, you build a business around a passion, mm-hmm. you have to find a way to market that passion. And I'd get so excited about selling the unique offering that we have that without, with being naive to that there's a whole lot of people that can't afford it mm-hmm. and that could never get there. And then I'd have people who I was unconsciously selling on the idea that their life could be changed if they came, and then they'd be disappointed when they realize that's not. And so I have really been humbled and learned a lesson there, and I'm much different now in realizing that we're not that unique. I mean, we're a, we're a good offering, but there are good offerings out there everywhere. We are one small program mm-hmm. in a sea of places that care about you, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, an emotional health workshop. Those are kind of, there aren't, there aren't a lot of places that do that. It can be your church, a community group at your church. It can be a free 12 step program. It can be a a group of uh, brothers or sisters that you pull around a fire at night and have a conversation. Mm. Don't underestimate uh, the act of telling one other person, something that you're scared of telling the world Mm -hmm. and they'll receive it and they'll hear it or they won't, but the risk is on you. You did it. You did your job by speaking your truth. And Mm -hmm. that often, that often, most often is where the mental health journey starts is one person talking to another person. Mm -hmm. And ultimately I wished, I I hope I work myself out of a job one day that we don't even need places like mine because it's just the norm that has happened in our community. And I'll be happy to reboot and do something else at that point. But that's where we're all going. Is if we go back to the roots, it's the way it always should have been. Mm. It's just we're living in a world that's moving so fast, we're having to create these bubbles to create mm. it for ourselves. But try not to get discouraged if you run into resource problems when it comes to looking for mental health, whether you're just in pursuit of a deeper life or whether you're in a crisis uh, you probably will strike out a time or two in trying to find the right resource. But you'd be amazed that there are resources out there if you persist, even mm-hmm. ones that are free. Unfortunately, you and I have outlined the problem that there aren't enough of them uh, that, mm-hmm. that offer free care. And I've even said I'd love to be able to do it more, and it's a goal that one day I will. But for mm-hmm. now, we're doing what we can, and I hope others will too. And just know that it, it's not a sign that you don't deserve it if you can't afford it. There's just other places that you can go, starting with your living room, even though it can be hard to tell another person your story if you're feeling in struggle and pain, but take the risk anyway, because likely they need you as much as you need them. Mm. Something really interesting that I learned also is that the separation from how we present versus how we're really feeling, the dissonance that creates in your relationship to yourself, when you name it, your body says thank you because you told it the truth. You know, when when you're having a, an experience thinking, I'm not okay, and then someone says, how are you? And you go, I'm great. You're not just glossing over the truth to your friend. You're lying to your body. You're telling your body it can't trust you. And the more that you just get honest about what you're going through when you are in a low point, the more your body knows it can trust you. And then the more often you feel like you're in high points because you're in this better communion with yourself. I, I used to, to talk about the program I, I'm lucky to be involved with as a hope that everybody would want to come. And now I don't do that. I just talk about the program 
uh, that I'm involved with because it's what I know, but it's just a hope that you'll want to go somewhere mm-hmm. and try to find some support, whether it's in your mm-hmm. neighborhood, mm-hmm. whether it's at your community health center, whether it's in private practice counseling, just, uh, I would encourage you to pursue the best version of you, whatever that looks like, even when you mm-hmm. run into a lot of roadblocks, continue to pursue it. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of our time, uh, in our admissions department, helping people find resources, knowing we're not the one. Mm. And I've given our folks and will continue to say, I don't care if you spend 80% of your time doing that. That's just part of what we want to do is don't, if somebody calls and they're not qualified, um, you spend time with them and try to help them find a resource in their backyard. So if you are listening and just feel stuck and struggling, you can call us, even if we may not be the right fit for you. We'll do our best to try to point you in the right direction. That's really kind that you guys do that. Thank you for that. So I have one more question for you. The podcast is called Work in Progress. And I'm curious for you today, what is something that you're working on? Mm. It'd be easier to say, what am I not working on? (laughs) I'm working on on a lot of stuff. Okay. Uh, I've really been working on myself as a leader. Mm. And myself as a husband and father. Those are three primarily key points in my life. And because there's still a part of me that even though you affirmed what I'm hoping to build, I I can microscope what I'm not doing well. Mm-hmm. And so you need to hear, I am proud of what I'm doing and I'm human. And uh, if my family were here, they'd tell you some areas that need growth. But the thing I am proud of is that I know those, they know those and know they know I'm in progress and working on them. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on that. But in, I feel like <clears throat> me as a leader is h- hitting a bit of a new chapter and that I, I felt I hit a ceiling with my business acumen and my leadership a few years ago. And I just thought I was okay with that. I was like, well, I better hire people around me that know how to do things I can't do. And then I thought, that's crap. Mm. Who says I can't stretch and learn and, and learn how to do new things? And so mm. I feel like I'm growing into a different leader, primarily learning how to not do everything myself, but to really empower and trust the people around me and get surround myself with people that are smarter than me, but also allow them to shine and do what they do. Mm. I think I used to say that, but I often didn't know how to follow through with it because I didn't know how to delegate. I was just, didn't know how to do things. And I I think I'm growing a ton in leadership and as being a dad. That's great. I love that. It's just definitely a a work in progress. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Starting with taking the tech out of my bedroom. I have to say a little prayer when, <laughs> when, uh, when companies invite me to come speak and I'm always surprised that uh, I shouldn't be, but I, cause I know I offer value to companies and it's happening more and more where they want me to come in and talk about emotional intelligence, in the workplace or whatever. And I'd literally have to say a prayer before I go in, uh, to, to just call my worth to the table. And to be mm-hmm. like, you've earned a spot to be here and you've got a message that, that can be supportive instead of coming in thinking, I don't know how to do this. I'm still trying to figure out how to be a leader myself. What am I going to offer these people? Mm. Um, I need to bring both of those parts to the table, be humble, mm-hmm. be vulnerable, but be confident and realize I've got something to say. And mm-hmm. so do you, if you're out there listening. Mm-hmm. And realize that you were invited into the room. Mm. You didn't break in. You didn't break in to give a talk at a company about how they can take better care of their employees. They asked you. So do it. Well, thank you. Thank you. This was not an interview. This was a conversation. I get to, I'm grateful to get to do some podcasts. I love the format. I'm a podcast nerd now, but this truly was a conversation. I don't know why I'm surprised, but it was a conversation. So thanks for facilitating it. Thanks for coming. Yeah.
This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.